Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Hezekiah. I'm not a pastor yet, but hopefully working in that direction. Uh, what I do have is some God-given ability to teach, so hopefully I can share some of that with you today. Uh, I have had the pleasure and the honor of uh, speaking here in Whitehall a couple of times uh, over the past year, and we've previously spoken about uh, the purpose of the church as a whole, to glorify God through our service to others, sharing the gospel, and making disciples of all nations. But what about our individual purpose? What was I made to do? As a kid, I was asked this question. What do you want to be when you grow up? For most kids, that's an easy answer, if not a realistic one. A firefighter, astronaut, cowboy, princess. Some people want to be TV stars or uh, go mining for gold, because there's a lot of that left. For me, it wasn't as easy. See, I didn't know what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be. In church, we used words like calling and purpose, but to me, it seemed like much the same. If I didn't know what I wanted to do, how on earth am I supposed to know what God wants me to do? As a young believer, loving Jesus, fired up and ready to jump in with both feet, and give my life for Christ, this question held a particular impact. Like Isaiah, I put it all out there. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Say the word and I'll be out the door. Kind of like playing hide-and-seek with a kid. You're counting to 100 while they hide. And right around number 39, you hear a voice from the closet, I'm ready. Come find me. Problem was, I didn't hear anything. I'm ready, God. Just let me know where to go. God, did you hear me? I said I'm ready. Here I am looking for this burning bush moment for the Lord of heaven to speak to me in a mighty rushing wind and let me know my destiny, as if God Almighty were just a fortune cookie. Now, we know that God has spoken through visions and dreams, that at many times and in many ways he has spoken through the prophets and through the Son, Jesus Christ, and through the word of the Bible. However, I'd kind of neglected that last one. See, in my prideful head, the Bible was for everyone. But I'm not just everyone, right? Surely God has a specific purpose for me and will give me the exact details I need to complete it. Well, not so much. To help us all learn from my mistakes, let's take a look at the scriptures to see what we should really expect. As we read previously in Matthew 25, the difference between the faithful and unfaithful servants was not how capable they were, but rather their attitude toward God. We see a similar difference between Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, if you'll turn with me there. This is Genesis 4, uh, verses 1 through 8. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now it's a familiar story. And what it's told, the focus is often on the murder in verse 8, or Cain's jealousy in verse 5. What can be overlooked is the fact that Abel's sacrifice is accepted, and Cain's is not. Now, this passage does not state why only Abel's sacrifice was acceptable, but in Hebrews 11.4 it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Similar to the servants, you know, the difference is one of attitude. We can also see, based on Cain's response to rejection, that he held a lot of pride in his offering. You know, God, I've given you this gift, and it's not enough for you, right? God, I've laid down my life, it's not enough for you. As if what I can do could ever be enough for God. A person's character is more truly represented by their reactions than their actions. When we serve out of pride, seeking status or recognition, our service is not acceptable. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly." When we're doing things, oftentimes it's for two reasons. Well, in pride, even for two reasons. See, we're familiar with the idea of looking for praise and recognition from others, you know, to stand up on the stage and have the spotlight shining on you and to give it your best and to hear the cheer and the applause and the roar of the crowds for something that you're good at, right? Something that's a skill or an innate ability. But even when we don't seek status or recognition, pride can still be a factor. How many times have I avoided doing something because I was afraid I would fail? To stand up here and stumble over my words and be judged by the people watching me. Why would I be afraid of failing? Because I'm afraid of the impact it will have on my reputation, how other people see me. See, I can't be one of those people who makes mistakes, right? I'm better than that, surely. Not really. <laughs> Even when I'm doing it for others, a part of me is concerned about what other people think of me. I was uh, convicted in writing this uh, last weekend because it was Friday night and I'm about to preach this on a Sunday morning. And I really, really don't want people to think that I don't put in the effort to make a real sermon with 24 hours of preparation and 40 hours a week of studying the scriptures, which <laughs> I work another job, so I don't necessarily have the time to do both. But 
I don't want you guys to think that I don't have the time to do both. I don't want you to think that as a human being, I can fail. That as a person with a wife and with a job and with you know, a youth ministry, that I don't have time to do all the things all the time perfectly. I don't like to make mistakes. And it's not that I don't like to do things wrong, but that I don't want people to think that I'm capable of doing things wrong. My wife doesn't think that I should write so much in my notes, that I need to be more open to the spirit leading me on a Sunday morning. I do try to be, but at this point of my life, I feel I'm more open to the spirit in my prep time than on Sunday mornings. With as far as God has brought me, I still struggle with something Proverbs 29, 25 calls the fear of man. I don't like to appear foolish, to look weak, to admit that I'm probably not qualified for this job. Realistically, half of me up here thinks that I'm hot stuff to be preaching at this age, and the other half is terrified that you're all judging me for being this young. But God says in Proverbs 9, 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen. Recognizing your place not in the eyes of other people, but in God's eyes. This is biblical humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is one that is a particular struggle for me. Uh, I grew up with six siblings and a family that very much valued achievement. You know, if you were the best in your class, you got the awards, right? If you did things perfectly, you got the recognition. And if you didn't, you got ridicule. We were very cruel and very harsh with each other. And as the fourth out of seven children, I had something that many middle children have, and that I wasn't the best at anything. Right? If I was good at speaking, I had a brother who was a better speaker. If I was, knew a lot about history, I had a brother who knew more about history. If I was good at games, I had another brother who was good at games. I wasn't the best at anything. And because I wasn't the best at anything, whenever the time came to do something, I was looking for the person who was better than me to do it first. When we moved here to Wisconsin, uh, after about a year or so, uh, I had the opportunity to volunteer in our youth ministry, to, to teach them, to lead them, to encourage and, and help develop them. And I was like, God, why me? I, don't, I didn't go to public school as a teenager. I didn't have any friends who were teenagers when I was one. And now here I am, you know, my early 20s, and you want me to teach them? to connect with them when I have no understanding what that means. So I spent a, a number of months, you know, even after God had you know, pointed this out, looking for just that one person who'd be better at it than me. And in my church, you know, I could see you know, men and women of God who had been in the faith for you know, decades longer than I had, uh, who had a knowledge of the word and a wisdom that was beyond my experience in my years. But when I'm looking at my qualifications and comparing them to other people's qualifications, 
I see what only people see, which is the outside. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my qualifications. He sees my purpose. When he looks at me, he doesn't see what I'm capable of, but what he is capable of doing through me. So it's not even about what I can do, but about being willing to try. To say, I might make a mistake. In fact, I probably will make a mistake. In fact, I definitely will make mistakes. But in my weakest moments, God is ever more visible to those around me. Uh, Simon Peter, for example, a fisherman by trade, right? No public speaking history, no great knowledge of the word, no uh, four-year degree or eight-year or 12-year degree in theological studies. But because he met Jesus, because he was called out, because he was close to the ministry, he was able to witness to thousands on behalf of Christ. He was able to stand up in the synagogues and proclaim the message of the gospel in a way that astounded the chief priests and elders. We read in Acts, I don't have the reference prepared, um, that they were asking themselves, is this not the same Peter who was a fisherman from Galilee? See, he didn't have a burning bush moment. I mean, you could say being called out by Jesus was pretty incredible, but we all have that. He wasn't given a sword, uh, aside from the sword of the spirit. He wasn't given a magic ring or a suit of armor that are physical or represented in this world. But he was given all the preparation and all the tools that he needed to be the man that God needed him to be. And I imagine he probably made a lot of mistakes. I imagine he tripped over his words quite a lot. But he didn't stop. And he didn't look at the calling and say, God, I can't do that because I'm not that person. He saw the calling of God who said, Peter, you will no longer be a fisher of fish, but a fisher of man. And he said, all right. I don't know what that looks like, but we'll go. We'll try it. And I think it worked out pretty well. I didn't know what teaching the youth would look like you know, three years ago. I didn't think I could. But I was like, all right, God, you know, if you want me to do this, I'll you know, show up on a Wednesday night, and I'll lead him on a, uh, to youth camp, and you know, prepare a lesson or two, if that's what you want me to do. And I kept expecting for him to tell me, all right, I, <laughs> I was wrong. Uh, youth teaching is not for you, Hezekiah, because you suck at it. But what he didn't say, <laughs> what I, he didn't do that because he was right and I was wrong. Because I was looking at it from my eyes and saying, I'm not capable of doing this. But once I took the step forward and did it, he did a lot more of the work than I did. Anyway, in addition to being humble, our service must be obedient. If God says go, you go. If he says stay, you stay. And if he says raise your children to be God-fearing children, you do that. Joshua was commanded to do according to all that the law had commanded him, so that he would have success in all that he does. The Israelites were given many laws pertaining to ceremonial feasts and sacrifices. You can read the book of Levit Leviticus for your homework if you want to know more. 
Uh, I'm not going to quote all of them, but there's a lot more that I have to deal with in my life. For now, though, we'll read an example from 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 24. For some context, uh, Saul is the king of Israel. He was appointed king by the Lord after the people of Israel demanded one. They were basically like, hey, Samuel, we don't trust your leadership. We don't trust God's leadership. We want a king for us to serve, like all the kings around us. So Samuel's like, or God is like, okay, you know, if the people aren't rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. But here, you know, appoint this man Saul as king. Saul was a mighty man of valor. He stood head and shoulders above all the rest. He was victorious in battle and just the most handsome, it says in scripture. But here in chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in oppressing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to the destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hevelah as far as Shut, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So here we have a dilemma, right? God gives a command to Saul through Samuel. Go and do this that I've asked you to do and destroy utterly everything that the Amalekites have because they were idol worshipers and they were, uh, God knew that when the Israelites took for themselves people from among those who worshiped idols, guess what the Israelites ended up doing? Worshiping idols. They were easily swayed by the nations around them. But Saul and his people, they destroy, you know, they follow God's word and everything that is utterly worthless, they destroy it. But when it comes time for the good, the fatted calves, the, the best bulls, the prized donkeys, even King Agag himself as a trophy, right, and the crown of Saul, look what I was able to do. Look at my victory. When we have to choose between our desires and God's word, it should be clear, right? You do what God says to do. But it's not always that simple for us. See, I can look at something God's asked me to do, and it's very easy for me to say, God, you don't know what you're talking about. You want me to move to Wisconsin? to give up the good paying job that I have and make you know, two thirds as much here, away from family and support and any you know, 
foundation if something were to go wrong. Saul here, he says, all right, we've destroyed the Amalekites, right? We've done what God has asked me to do, but I don't really want to give up these fatted calves, right? Think how much better Israel would be if we had these as part of our flocks. Think how much more prosperous the nation would be if we had these as part of our, our, our nation. We'll read a little more uh, in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to him, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done what I was asked to do. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep to my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. See, it's not for our gain, God, that we took these things, but for you. See, we want you to be glorified through the best of the calves and the best of the sheep and the donkeys. So we spared them for the Malachites for you, God, for your purposes. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And Saul said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So here we have two excuses, right, for disobedience. One, the people wanted to do that. And I, as the king, had to do what the people wanted. That's not how it's supposed to be, right? I, as the leader, am not swayed by the people who God has given to follow me. I should be leading the people that God has given to follow me in the righteous ways that God has asked me to lead them. Second excuse there, we mentioned a little bit before, the people spared these things for you, God, because we know what you want, God, and we can do what you want, God, because I know better than you, God, what you want. So Samuel said in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. See, here we have again, in pride, the fear of man over the fear of God, that I'm more scared of what you might think about me 
than about what God thinks about me. And here, too, Saul has the same issue. I'm more scared of what the people want from me than what God wants from me. God desires the obedience of his people more than any mighty work they can do in his name, more than any fragrant sacrifice. I'm reminded of the cry of the church in early centuries, we must take back the Holy Land in the name of God and Christendom. During the First and Second Crusades, many lives were lost due to the actions of those who would claim only to be serving God. God, it is for your interests that we capture the Holy Land, that we drive out the people that are there, that we enslave some of the nations that we come across. Because God wants me to do that, right? God would be pleased if I killed people in his name. We cannot see the heart of a man to know if their actions are in pride or in humility, but we can recognize them by their adherence to the word of God. In Matthew 7, Jesus warns of false prophets who come dressed as sheep, but inside are hungry like wolves. How do you tell them apart? Not by the words they say, but by the fruit of their choices. For not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but those who are obedient to the will of the Father. Another passage in Isaiah 1, 11 through 20, shows God's heart on this matter. It says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of hearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. For if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the need for sacrifices is only present when his people are disobedient. Right? When, God and Eve, when Adam and Eve uh, turned away in the garden and disobeyed God, they required the sacrifice of the lamb and the covering of sheep's clothes, for they were naked without God's glory. Even the book of Leviticus and all the ceremonial laws that the Israelites had for keeping feasts, for cleanliness, for sacrifices, were based on atonement for their sins because they were unrighteous. Now, all the nations were unrighteous, but God's chosen people of Israel were given these laws to set them apart from the other nations so that they could be his people. As we know, 
we're not required to keep the sacrifices because Jesus Christ himself, being the perfect sacrifice, paid the price for all of our sins so that there are no longer slaves nor free nor Jews nor Greeks nor male nor female, but all of us united in the family of God under the blood of Jesus Christ. But we still need to be obedient to him. He still requires that we serve him, that we honor his commands, and that we live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. He doesn't care if I bring forth a thousand dollars to say I'm sorry for the mistake that I made, for the sin that I committed, for not loving my wife, for despising you know, my family and making fun of that person at church. He'd rather that I just love the person, that I don't say something that's mean to them, that I do not use harsh words for my children, that I honor my wife. For if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Our best efforts are for nothing if they aren't in love. Love for God and love for people. Our service, our sacrifice, even our obedience is wasted if it isn't for love's sake. I was saved as a little boy and grew up in church. I knew the right answers to the Sunday school questions. I could recite scripture verses from memory and tell you the books of the Bible in order. I did my chores at home. I obeyed my parents. I didn't lie, cheat, or steal, and I certainly never killed anyone. But I didn't do it out of love. I didn't love my parents. I was afraid they would spank me. I didn't love God. I was afraid he would send me to hell. And that fear grew each time I sinned until I felt certain that God couldn't love me either. But here's the thing about love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 18 through 21. The Pharisees, the most righteous among sinners, were very good at obeying the law. In fact, they loved the law so much that they made a bunch of bonus laws to keep them from getting anywhere near breaking the law. But in loving the law, they did not love the giver of the law. Matthew 23, 23 says that they tithed on their mint and dill and cumin, plucking one-tenth of the herbs in their window boxes to give to God. But while they were very good at following the letter of the law, the minutia, the written word, they neglected to obey the spirit of the law, which was justice and mercy and faithfulness. While I went to church every Sunday and Wednesday, tithed on all my paychecks, and could quote scripture that says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, I really didn't. 
I wanted to be special. I wanted to do something for God that nobody else could do, to be the chosen one. I remember hearing people say that if the devil wasn't attacking you, you weren't doing enough for God. Because God had blessed me abundantly, I was even afraid that I wasn't suffering enough for him. Because not suffering, in my mind, meant that I wasn't serving God hard enough. I wanted God to ask something from me that would prove that I love him more than anybody else loves him. But what does God actually want? The Lord desires our service, but only when it comes with humility, obedience, and love. I could sacrifice all that I have for him, and it wouldn't compare in the slightest to what he already has. He doesn't need my time, my talents, my money, my memory, no grand gesture, nor even the sacrifice of my firstborn child. Our Heavenly Father just wants his children to love him and to love each other. The prophet Micah writes, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Whatever you are when you grow up, whether you're at your job, in church, with family, whatever you do in word or deed, do it unto the Lord. I was so busy looking for my calling, for what I wanted to do for God, that I missed what he actually wants from me, from you, from all of us. If you want to know what God is asking you to do, it is this, to seek justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And a close in prayer. Father God, you have done so much for us. We could never balance the scales or repay you for your love. We could never earn your forgiveness through our actions, through our choices. No matter what resources we have on this earth, Lord, they're only because you've given them to us. Our time, every breath, is a gift from God, every second upon this earth. Every word that I speak, every thought that I think, I could not do without you. So Lord, who am I to say to you that I am glorified by my service to you? Who am I to say to you that I know better what you want from me? Who am I to say to you, no, when you've told me to do something? Lord, whether I think that I'm good enough or don't think that I'm good enough doesn't matter. But who you say that I am. Lord, help us to be humble, to recognize our place before you. Not in pride, thinking that we deserve it, or in shame, thinking that we don't but in humility, recognizing honestly what you say about us, that you love us. End of sentence. God, I pray that we would do all things in obedience to you, that we would not seek to serve our own interests, Lord, but yours and the interests of others. 
Lord, I pray that we would lovingly submit ourselves to your rule and your authority and serve those around us, not for recognition or reward, but because we love them and because we love you. Help us not to be so caught up in thinking about whether or not we love a person and just act like we do, to treat them like we do, to speak to them like we do. And in doing so, Lord, to trust that you're changing our hearts to be more in line with your spirit. God, help us to seek to do these things, to seek justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Let us depart this place, but not your presence, and to enter your gates with joy every day of our lives. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.